0: Good morning, Central. I'll probably be doing the crochet class for those of you that have kids interested in crocheting. Hey, how many of you uh, have led a skill class in the past? Clearly, some of you need a volunteer for uh, the skill school. Hey, talk to, to Pastor John after the service. Just get a little more information. It, it is a dynamic week uh, when kids either come to know Christ or come to know Him closer, and a lot of relationships are built. It's a great, great time. Uh, Just a quick announcement related to masks in our church. You you know that a couple weeks ago, the city uh, relaxed their their mandatory mask mandate uh, for indoor businesses that don't provide social distancing. And we had been doing that through the first of the year. Uh, And up to since then until now, uh, we've only had one service where masks are required. That's 8 o'clock a.m. Uh, And beginning Easter morning in two weeks, uh, that will be removed. And so there, there will be no services where masks are required. If you want to wear a mask, um, you can. You can see that there's some space in the services. If you want more social distancing, um, the, the 8 o'clock service is probably our least attended. Saturday evening, there's a lot of, of space if you want to space out and do that. Not space out, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> Which you normally do during my message, space, space out. So, um, and uh, Oakwood Chapel will continue to be an overflow area with social distancing. If you just want to not be around a lot of people and yet watch the, the message, you can do that. Um, four services on Easter. The, the first one is not 8 o'clock, it's 7.45. Uh, and then we'll run through, I think, 11.30. Uh, start time. So anyways, you, the bulletin can, can tell you more about that. Take your white bulletin insert out and tear the perforation for me. If you're new to Central, a couple things we do with this. First, if you have a prayer request on that thin portion called a communication card at the top, just write down your prayer need. We, we send this out to dozens of people in our church every week that pray for these needs. So if you'd like the church family to come around you and pray for something, please write that down. On your way out, you can drop that in one of the boxes attached to the walls um, that says prayer requests or offerings. If you have a physical offering that you'd like to bring this morning to the Lord, uh, a check or cash, you can drop that off in the very same, same box. The wide portion you can take notes on. If you'd like to follow the sermon this morning and, and take notes, you can do that. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for this uh, amazing group of people and their, their hearts that are hungry for you, their hearts that want to learn more about you. So Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and our hearts in the next few minutes. Help us to understand your word as we read it as we teach on it. Help us to apply it in our lives, God, and help us to see the life change that we desire in Jesus' name. Amen. Great to see you guys this morning. If you're watching us online uh, on our Facebook live page or our website, thanks for joining us and uh, can't wait for you to get back here live into our services. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 5. The Gospel of John chapter 5. If you find the New Testament, John is the fourth book Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four Gospels in the New Testament. We're going to jump into chapter 5. In just a minute here, we'll begin reading in verse, in verse 1. I'm convinced that there's no person on the earth that doesn't want to live a better life. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that everybody wants to live the best possible life. I think all of us. We want to live the best possible life. That's why we change jobs. That's why we go to school or that's why we go back to school. Uh, for some people, that's why we lose weight or why we exercise or um, why we get married or why we have children or, or why we try to stop doing things that maybe aren't health, healthy for us like drink, abusing alcohol or smoking or other things. We, we want to live the best life possible, but I'm wondering if we, if we look in the right place for the best life possible. You know, some of us in our pursuit for the best life that we could possibly live, uh, we, we follow the lies, the deceptions of the culture that we live in. You know, culture lies to us about what's true, about what's helpful, uh, about what's healthy for us, especially in our lives spiritually. Um, culture says things like, that unless you're a woman who's thin, you're not beautiful or attractive. It's just absolute nonsense. Um, culture tells us... Uh, Lots of things about, uh, you know, if you, if you want to be successful, this is what you need to do. They, they, they tell our young people that if you're in, in a dating relationship with somebody and you're considering marriage, that you ought to live together. You, you ought to begin to, to be involved sexually together because, you know, that's the only way you're really going to know if this is the person that you want to be with for the rest of your lives. And that's absolutely contrary to Scripture. Scripture says maintain your sexual purity. Scripture says offer yourselves in purity to your husband or your wife on that wedding day. You don't need to uh, explore that, that area of your relationship before you get married. So sometimes we follow the lies and deceptions of our culture as we pursue the best life possible. And you know what else we do? Sometimes we, we, we follow the bad counsel of good friends. The bad counsel of friends that, that, that want to help us but see us in our pain and maybe don't give us the best counsel. Do you remember the book of Job and Job's friends? Job's friends wanted to help him. Job's friends wanted to counsel him. They, they, they wanted to um, encourage him. and yet the counsel that they gave was not consistent with what, Job, what, you, what God wanted Job to hear. And, and there's all kinds of, of things that, that meaningful friends try to, try to help us with in our lives, uh, thinking that it might, so, so for instance, if you're on a team, or. Or you're in a job where you're not getting along with the coach, or you're not, you're not getting along with your boss, or whatever it is, and it's just hard, and it's difficult to, to work through that. And, and you may just you know, say, I just wanna quit. And, and a well meaning friend may say, You know what? You just need to get away from that coach. You know what? You just need to get away from that job. You just need to quit. And that may, may not be exactly what God wants you to do. Maybe he wants you to work through a very difficult relationship in your life. Maybe he wants you to rise above that instance and, and learn that you can, through Christ, you can endure those tough challenges in life. Maybe God doesn't want you to quit. Or, or maybe you're in a really hurtful marriage, just a really challenging marriage, and, and you're, you're, you're frustrated and you're hurt by that, and, and, and you have friends saying, you know, you just ought to just Just, just divorce. Just, just walk away from that and just get a divorce. And yet there's no, there's no biblical reasons to get a divorce. Again, friends that want to help, well-meaning well friends that might be counseling you to do something that, that goes against what God wants you to do. And if we're not careful, we can follow deception toward what we think is the best life possible. Here, here's the good news this morning. The good news, and if you're taking notes, you can, you can just jot this down. God wants us to have the best life possible. God wants you to have the best life possible, but you got to make sure you're looking for it in the right place, that you're going after it in, in the right way, and that you're not believing a lie. And in our, in our story today, in John chapter 5, we're going to encounter a man, a man who for 38 years wanted a better life. In fact, he wanted the best life possible. But he was looking for it in the wrong place. In fact, he was believing a lie. So John chapter 5, we're going to jump into verse 1 in just a minute, but I have to give you a little background that will help you understand specifically what's happening in this text. The Greeks believed that natural springs had a healing or medicinal value, that the, 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 the waters were actually influenced by spirits. And that these spirits uh, would cause the stirring of natural springs and it would bring healing. And so what the Greeks did was they built temples or shrines next to natural springs. And within that temple they would build pools with decks around the pool uh, so that people that were sick or infirmed could come to that pool and and, and find healing in it. Um, So in Greek mythology... Uh, Asclepius was the god of medicine. He was Apollo's son. He was the god of medicine, or healing. Um, you know that the American Medical Association uh, logo is that, that, that pole with the serpent wrapped around it? Well, Asclepius had serpent spirits that worked with him. And it was believed that these serpent spirits caused the stirring of the water uh, in natural springs, and so when the, when the Greeks built these temples around the natural springs, they believed that these serpent spirits were stirring the water. So they called these temples es- Esklopians, I know, easy for me to say, Esclopians, named after the Greek god Esclopius. Okay, And so they, they built them all over the, the, the Greek Empire, which would soon become the Roman Empire. So in the days of Jesus, there were these Esclopians, these, these temples that were built with pools where people would come and they would lay around the pool. And if the water stirred by a natural spring, and if they were in the pool, or if they got into the pool after it started stirring, they believed that they could be healed by these spirits. Okay, so fast forward a little bit, and the Jews build a pool outside of the temple in Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethesda, the Pool of Bethesda. This is, this is what it may have looked like. So you see the Temple Mount, that's the northern gate of the temple, and then to the north of that, to the right, is the, the two pools of Bethesda, which was excavated and discovered in the 1900s as an actual uh, place that the Bible was talking about. And we're going to take a closer look at, that, at those pools. You can see that there are porches around the perimeter there. There's the pools in the middle, those colonnades, and the roof that would protect the people lying on those decks from the sun. Okay? Um, you need that understanding as we begin John chapter 5 to understand what's happening in the story. John chapter 5 verse 1. John says, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, porches. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, just like we just talked about. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second, because the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is not in the original Greek manuscripts from which we get the New Testament. So these were added later. They're, they're not part of the, the inspired scriptures. But when we get to verse 7, you're going to see why the end of verse 3 and verse 4 was added because of this superstition. So here we go, the end of verse 3. The sick and lame and blind and withered were laying around waiting for the moving Of the waters, again, not in the original manuscript. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Sounds an awful lot like... Greek mythology, doesn't it? That superstition that if, if the, the, the waters get stirred, you could step down in there. Now, your Bibles may not even have that verses, those, those two verses. Or it may, or there may be a footnote saying these verses were actually not in the original manuscript, but added later. Let's go into verse 5. A man was there at the pool of Bethesda who had been ill, Ill or sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition for a long time. He said to the man, do you want to get well? The sick man answered Jesus and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming down to step into the pool, another steps down before me. Now verse 7 is in the original manuscript. So this, this man that's saying, you know, when, when the waters are stirred, I, I want to get down, but I don't have anybody to put me down in there. Well, he was believing a superstition a superstition that the angels or spirits were stirring the water and that if somebody went down there and got into the water, they'd be healed. Well, that's why these verses were added in in verse 3 and in verse 4, along with that lore, along with that superstition, along with that belief that that the waters could be stirred, therefore people are lying around these pools waiting to get in and get healed. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your mat or your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your mat. That would be working and you would be breaking the Sabbath rules. But he answered them and said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who had healed, but the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus after healing him had slipped away into the crowd. verse 14. Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to the man whom he had healed, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now I just want to pause there. We're going to get to that verse, but that's an interesting verse. Jesus heals the man, finds him in the temple, and says, Now, don't sin anymore, so nothing worse happens. Hold on to that thought. We're going to get get back to that verse. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, encouraging him to break the Sabbath. But he answered and said, My father, Jesus said, is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling himself God, making himself one with the Father. All right. What does this story teach us about the best life possible? What do we learn from the story of the man that Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda? What does that teach us about having the best life possible? If you're taking notes, you can follow along. The first thing is this, it's, it's not hard to find. The, the best life possible is not hard to find. In fact, let me say this. You don't find the best life possible, it finds you. You don't find it, it finds you. Verse 5 says this, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there, And knowing that he had already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, do you want to get well? Notice that in this story, this man is near the pool in Bethesda. And the man doesn't engage Jesus. The man doesn't seek Jesus. The man doesn't introduce himself to Jesus. The man doesn't initiate anything related to Jesus. Jesus initiates everything with him. Jesus goes after him. This this may have been the the, the loneliest, the the most marginalized, the the, the most hurting, the most unnoticed person in in the entire pool of Bethesda. In fact, nobody cared about this guy. Nobody cared about Nobody was willing to help him into the pool when the water stirred. Nobody cared. There There was only one person in this whole story that cared about this guy. Who is it? Jesus. He's the only person that cares about this guy. What does John want us to know about this story in verse 1 when he says, now there was a feast of the Jews that was going on, but he doesn't tell us what the feast was. What's the significance of that? Well, sometimes John will tell us what the feast is because the miracle of Jesus in some way is connected to the feast or the celebration. John, John isn't worried about the particular feast. What John wants us to know is that Jerusalem was packed with people. What he wants us to know is what, where normally there might have been several dozen people laying around the pool of Bethesda, on this particular day, because of the feast that was going on, there might have been hundreds of people laying around that were sick and infirmed and needed, and needed healing. He wants us to know that that three times a year, the Jewish males had to come to Jerusalem, no matter where they lived, to celebrate these feasts. And so the population just exploded during this time. Now, my wife, Sherlene and I, we were in Israel um, during the the Sabbath. And we were uh, on the eve of the Shabbat, or the Sabbath, we were taken to the marketplace. Here's a picture of it. It's just Incredible. The number of people going to the market because at sundown on on the Sabbath evening, uh, everything closed down. You couldn't get food. So they're frantically trying to get everything they can for the Sabbath meal because for 24 hours they won't be able to shop. And this wasn't even the Sabbath that John is talking about. This is a, a Jewish festival. I mean, this place was absolutely packed. It was a sea of humanity. And Jesus goes into the pool of Bethesda. Packed with people, and he sees one guy and he goes after him. Maybe the loneliest guy. Maybe the guy that everybody else overlooked. Maybe the guy that nobody cared about. Notice in this story that that this guy doesn't find Jesus, Jesus finds him. Here's what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Talking about his mission, Jesus says the Son of Man, talking about himself, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's talking about a shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd going after, after the lost sheep. And, and in this case, he, he goes and he finds the one. In fact, Jesus in John 15 teaches about this. Here's what he says. If a man has a hundred sheep, if a shepherd is watching a hundred sheep in the wilderness and one of them gets lost, how many? Just One. If one of the sheep wanders from the fold and gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Well, he's got 99 that are still in the pen, 99 that haven't wandered off. He he leaves them because his heart is concerned for the one. He goes on. And when he has found the one... He will joyfully carry the one home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and his neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because the one that I lost is now what? Found. Jesus walks in to the pool of Bethesda. And he sees a guy that's not interested in him. A guy that says, if I, if I can just get into the pool... I'll be well." A guy that's not seeking Jesus, doesn't necessarily care about God, like me. A guy like me, that before he found Christ, didn't want anything to do with God. That's my story. All I wanted was to live for pleasure. All I wanted was to live for myself. All I wanted was to chart the course that I wanted to live in my life. The way that I wanted to live, the way that I wanted to live, I didn't care about God. I wasn't interested in God. I'm so glad that God was interested in me. Come on, somebody. Even when I wasn't, because he goes after the one. He goes after the wayward one. He goes after the hard-hearted one. He goes after the rebellious one. He goes after the one that in that moment in time doesn't care about him. He goes after that one. That was me. Maybe that was you. Maybe you were the one. That didn't want anything to do with God. Maybe you were the one that was living your own life, however you wanted to live it. And and the Good Shepherd, he came after you. Notice that the life you've always wanted, the best possible life, it finds you. The second truth about the best possible life not only is it not hard to find, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. What did this guy think about healing and restoration? He thought, if I just get where? In the pool. The pool, that's the golden ticket to the the life I've always wanted. That's the golden ticket to the best possible life. But I'm so frustrated, no one will help me get to the pool. Verse 7. The sick man answered and said, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down. If I could could get into the pool, my life would totally change. Like, if I could be free from this thing that I've been struggling with for 38 years, if I could step into the pool... That's that's the ticket. I mean, that's the road to everything I've always wanted. What's your pool? What is it that you say? If I just, if I just had a better job, if I just had more money, if I just had a better husband or a better wife, if I just had better health, if I just had a better family. If I if I could just get rid of this grief and this sorrow in my life. If I could just if I could just if I could just Doesn't that sound like a lot of excuses? I've got Christ. Maybe you have Christ in your life. I've got Jesus. But you know, if I just had this, I'd have the best life possible. If if this thing would just change in my life, then it would be fantastic. I sometimes wonder if that's an insult to God. We have him. And we keep saying, if I just get in the pool, man, life will take off. Notice what Jesus didn't do. When the man says, I have have no one to put me into the pool, what didn't Jesus do? Tell me. He didn't put him in the pool. Why not? It was a lie. It was a superstition. It was Greek mythology. What, What lie are you following to say, Jesus is good, but it's not enough? Jesus is a little something. Jesus helps me you know, once in a while, but, but this is really the pool. If I'm going to be free, if I'm going to be whole, if I'm going to be everything that I want to be in life, Jesus, whatever, but give me the pool, baby. Right? Jesus was God. Jesus put, could have picked a paralyzed guy up. If he was 100 feet away from the pool, he could have thrown him 100 feet into the air and landed him right in the middle of the pool, couldn't he, because he's God. Did he? Why not? It was a lie. It was an excuse for not following the source of life. The the third thing about the best life possible is that it's found in Jesus. It's not found in the pool. The best life possible is found in Jesus. Verses 6 and 8 and 9, says this, Jesus, upon seeing this man lying there and knowing that he had already been in that condition for a long time, said to him, do you want to get well? Like, that's a bizarre question, right? Anyone that's been in that condition for that long, don't you think they'd want to get well? I'll I'll talk about that in a second. Jesus, skipping verse 7, when the guy says, I don't have anybody to help me get to the pool, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, your pallet, and walk immediately the man became well. He picked up his pallet, began to walk, and it was the Sabbath on that day. Jesus heals him, and it says that he was well. The word well there in the Greek means whole, healed, restored, complete. Jesus did a work in his life. So why does Jesus say, do do you want to get well?" well? Well, Jesus wasn't just saying you know, hey, would, would you like, you know, somewhere down the road, like a few years down the road, would, would you like to have a better life? Would, would you like to be healed? Would you like to be whole someday? It's not what he's saying. Because in, in the Greek grammar of that text, the, the verb there for to be or become, to be or become whole, to be or become well, to be or become restored, is in the aorist tense. And the aorist tense is, is always marked by the action happening at a specific point in time. In other words, Jesus wasn't saying, hey, pal, like in three or four months, if I put you on this program, would, would you want to start toward the process of, of being whole, being healed? No, Jesus, Jesus is saying, do you want to get well now? Do you want to get well in this moment? Do you want the best possible life today? You know, I talk to a lot of people in the church, a lot of people that grew up in the church or are in the church now. And I say, hey, when did, when did you commit your life to Christ? When did you become a Christian? When did everything change? And sometimes they say this, I don't know. I've, I've just always been around church. I've I've always been around God. I mean, my my parents were Christians, and they raised us that way. And um, I I I went to um, catechism or CCD or or I I went to confirmation class, and I was confirmed and baptized. I did first communion. I, I I went through all that. Yeah, but yeah, but when when did your life change? I don't know. I there really wasn't. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Because to be a Christian means there was a point in your life, there was a moment when you were entrenched in sin, you were bound in sin, you were a slave to sin, and Jesus Christ set you free. There was a moment. That's why scripture uses such, such profound language when it talks about salvation. You were once in darkness, blind, and suddenly you could see. You were once dead, and then you were resurrected to new life. Everything was old, but now everything has become new. There's something about the Christian life. There's a moment. There's a moment of conversion. There's a moment you surrender your life to Christ. There was a moment when this guy was paralyzed, and there was a moment when he was healed. There's a moment. Jesus comes to us and he says, Right now, would you like to be made well? Would you like your sin forgiven? Would you like to go from darkness to light? Would you like to go from death to life? Would you like to be resurrected? And friends, let me tell you, you know when you're dead and you come to life. You know. Man, if you don't know, you need to know. Because God wants you to have the confidence and assurance that you are his. Get before the Lord and say, Lord, man, save me. Invite the Holy Spirit into your life. If you've just grown up in the church, but there was never that moment That you committed your life to Christ when you surrendered your will to his, when his Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, and you changed. There's a moment in our lives. Paul said if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Everything's become new. You're now living a different life. See, the, the best life possible is found in Jesus because he changes everything. Now, does that mean that our life becomes perfect when we come to Christ? Absolutely not. Does that remove trials from our life? Does that remove hardship from our life? Does that remove pain from our life? No. But you know that you're walking with the one that can fulfill and satisfy your soul, and you have an eternity that's promised for you in heaven. That's the best life possible walking with him in this life and knowing that you're going to walk with him forever no matter what life throws at you. You can have the best life possible and it's found in Jesus Christ. And the last thing about the best life possible is this. It's affected by sin. Do you want to live the best life God has for you? Sin can affect it. So here's what he says to the guy in verse 14. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well, don't sin anymore, so nothing worse happens to you. Like, what does that mean? That nothing worse happens to you? The, the dude had been paralyzed 38 years. That, that's a lot of physical uh, discomfort, pain, whatever, and shame emotionally. What does Jesus mean when he says, Don't sin anymore, that, that nothing worse than what you experience comes upon your life? Let me give you three suggestions. I don't know which one's right. You can decide. Here's the first. Jesus may be connecting this guy's specific sin to his physical problem. Jesus could be saying that your paralysis or whatever I saved you from, whatever I healed you from, was a direct result of your sin. How many of you know that there are sins in our life that directly affect our health, that directly affect our emotion, that directly affect our life? Not every sin does, but some do. If you have a, a history, a life history of smoking or abusing alcohol or taking drugs, that can have a serious impact on your body. If you have a problem with anger and anger management and you don't check that, you don't control that, you don't deal with that, 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 could, that could bring destructive circumstances in here. You can lose your marriage, your family, everyone you care about. You can get, be put into jail. There are severe consequences if you don't get your anger under control. Sexual sexual immorality, a lifestyle of sexual immorality can can cause disease and even death, premature death. Maybe Jesus was saying that the sin that you you committed that put you in that situation that I set you free from, don't go back. Because if you go back, it's going to get worse. I saved you from that. You're free. Don't do it again, amen? Whatever that is. I extended grace to you. And set you free. Don't bring yourself back into the hole. Because it could be worse next time. That that may be what he's saying. Or or he may be talking about what what we call in the Bible the discipline of the Lord. We don't like this one. Because our concept of God sometimes in the church is just ooey-gooey fun grace. God never does anything that might inflict pain in our lives. Because God's just good. He's just a loving father that never wants to do anything that in any way could threaten our comfort. How many of you know that God is a father? And fathers discipline their children for their good. Fathers and mothers teach their children. They discipline them, they instruct them in order to help them grow into responsible people. Here's what the Bible says about God as a father, Romans, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. Come on, somebody. We just do the, be- <laughs> we just do the best we can, right? Not, not always perfect, we're just trying, right? We're trying to figure this out. We're just doing the best we can to raise our kids in the way that we think it's right. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his what? Holiness, that's the best possible life. To live a life that reflects the nature and character of God, that, that's how we want to live. So, so, so we can share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Do your kids smile when you take their cell phones away? It, it's not pleasant. It's not fun. Or when you discipline them in another way, it's not enjoyable. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained by discipline. Friends, God disciplines his children that he loves if we're sinning. He corrects us so he'll bring us back to the point where we're not being dis- uh, destroyed by that behavior. He cares about us, and he wants to, us to share in his holiness. So if we sin, there's going to be correction in our life. Parents, you know what this is right about, right? So depending on how old your kids are, they, they lie to you. And you, you have to inflict some pain, so you take their, their cell phone away, maybe, or whatever else it is, that, how, what their age-appropriate discipline is. So you, you take their phone away for a week, right? And, and they endure the week, and then they lie again. Okay, let me ask you the question. Does the discipline get harder or easier? Harder, right? So now it's three weeks with no phone, one meal a day of asparagus and broccoli. That's it. <laughs> Until you can learn, right? One meal a day, asparagus and broccoli, three, three weeks without the cell phone, right? And they lie again. Does the discipline get harder or easier? Why? because you love them and you want to break this habit that could destroy their life right three months with no food only water right no cell phone no friends ever they can they can only go to school and nowhere else for the rest of their life right until they stop lying we get it don't we Why is it so hard to understand that with our relationship with God as Heavenly Father? That because of his great love for us, he doesn't want us in self-destructive behavior. He wants us reflecting his glory in his image. And so there could be discipline from a loving father in our lives. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Go go and sin no more so that you don't keep putting yourself under this discipline of God. Maybe maybe that's it, maybe it's not. Or, Or the last possibility. Maybe this guy was healed by Jesus Maybe he received God's grace to be healed physically, but he he didn't accept Christ as Lord. He didn't receive the the gift of eternal life and salvation through Christ. He had accepted the the physical goodness of God, but he didn't didn't commit his life to God. Well, think of it this way. What, What could be worse than 38 years of a horrible disease... The shame that it brought, the emotional trauma that he went through as a result of 38, what could be worse than that? An eternity in hell. Friends, I don't know what you've gone through in this life. I don't know how painful it's been. I don't know how many people you've lost. I don't know how how much you feel destroyed and beaten down. I I don't know how, how broken your heart is. I can tell you this, the pain you will experience in this life is nothing than the pain of eternity separate from Christ. Maybe Jesus is telling this guy, go go and sin no more so that you don't have an eternity in hell. Let me ask you this morning, if Jesus came to you right now and he said those words, go and sin no more, what sin would he be talking about? That nothing worse happens to you. If Jesus pinpointed the sin right now that you know you need to change, what would that sin be? If Jesus spoke those words right now, stop it. What is it? Would you stand with me this morning? The best life possible is available through Christ. We, we don't need the pool. We, we don't need other things. We need Christ. And, and if you're here today and you've never, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never put your trust in him, he's inviting you today to life change. Would you pray with me? If that's you this morning, would you just open your heart to the Lord and just say, Lord, I, I recognize that there's more to life than the years of my existence here. There's an eternity. And Lord, I don't want to face that eternity without you. Would you forgive my sin this morning, Lord? Would you, like you did this man, would you change him in the moment? Would you change my heart? Would you change my life? Would you cleanse me of my sin? That nothing worse than the sins I've already committed would haunt me that I'd be free. Lord, for those that are here this morning and, and they hear those words, go and sin no more, that that which has had put you in bondage doesn't put you in bondage again. For, for those that need to hear the words from you that, that say, you were bound but now you're free, don't put yourself in bondage again. Lord, for those of us this morning that need to trust that you are seeking those in our lives that we care about, that you're going after the one as the good shepherd. Oh God, pursue them diligently. God, save them. Reach them. In Christ's name. Amen. So may you experience the the life-changing power of Jesus Christ at your pool of Bethesda. May you realize that the, the best possible life is found in Jesus Christ. You've been freed from your sins through the power of Christ. So may you stay free through him. God bless you.